Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello, and welcome back to Madison's Notes. Our guest today is Michael Anton. He is a lecturer at Hillsdale College, a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute, a former senior national security official in the Trump administration, and the author most recently of The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael Anton, welcome. Thank you. I, th- I think we have to start at the beginning, and I know you've recounted this, uh, this story ad nauseum, uh, so you can just do it briefly. Uh, but in 2016, you wrote an essay entitled The Flight 93 Election. Yeah. And that essay began like this, quote, 2016 is the Flight 93 election. Charge the cockpit or you die. You may die anyway. You or the leader of your party may make it into the cockpit and not know how to fly or land the plane. There are no guarantees, end quote. And your call was answered. Uh, you and the leader of your party made it into the cockpit. Uh, so I'm curious now, four years after that essay, what do you think looking back at it? Are we better for storming that cockpit? Uh, I, I have no doubt that we're better off that Trump won this 2016 election. Uh, I, I, this is a counterfactual that cannot be proven, except right. perhaps if Trump were to win or lose the 2020 election. Um, I thought that a Hillary Clinton, you know, I say in the essay, I thought it would have empowered the left permanently um, or semi-permanently and, and, and unleashed all of their worst instincts. Although that's the one thing maybe I was wrong about because they're much worse now than having, let me put it this way. The only way, the only way that having lost the 2016 election would have perhaps made things better in my view is if uh, permanent blue state politics in America is inevitable either way. It's just a question of timing. Then maybe one could argue it would have been better to let them have it in 2016 and, and assume those powers in a calmer, more patient way, rather than froth them up for four years so that when they finally assume those powers, they decide uh, you know, that uh, the punishment that must be inflicted for Trump is, is, is so great that they, they uh, come in with a zeal that I think they might have lacked, or at least not in fully uh, indulged in in 2016. The path, in other words, the path to permanent woke managerial blues, blue tyranny, had it been accomplished in 2016, might have been a little bit smoother and calmer, but we would have all ended up at the same destination. Whereas uh, right now they're they're really out for blood. And when they get power again, it's going to be a lot messier and nastier than it would have been that time, at least in the initial phases. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings us to, to this most recent book, The Stakes. And you say that America is at the point of no return. Um, early in the book, you write that this is a book, and by extension, I think a conversation of the book that is of, by, and for yeah. the right. Yeah. Uh, why? I, I'm curious. If because the stakes- I, I don't expect liberals to read it at all or leftists to accept its argument. It's, and, I, and I don't care what they think of it. There's not, I'm not having a conversation with them. I don't think it's possible to have a conversation with them anymore. That's one of the reasons why America is at the point of no return. There's no, I, I, I don't see that the left and right really have anything in common anymore. I don't feel that I have anything in common with 
the left anymore. I, I mm -hmm. except that we live in the same physical space. I want I want a politics that resembles the older America. They want a politics that resembles a kind of woke managerial tyrannical future. Or let me put it this way: to quote my 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 old pal Nicholas Machiavelli, um, <laughs> Niccolo Machiavelli in books uh, in uh, chapter nine of The Prince, and also in book one, chapter three of the Discourse. Uh, he says that uh, in every city, in every political community, these two diverse humors are found, which, which is, uh, results from this, that the great wish to uh, command and oppress the people and the people desire neither to be commanded nor oppressed. Uh, I think uh, leftists in America want to command and oppress red America, middle America, and red America wants neither to be commanded nor oppressed. I am a blue American by birth, upbringing and education in many ways. I am now my soul and heart are completely red and I want neither to be commanded nor oppressed, but I all, I don't want to rule them and I don't want to be ruled by them. They want to rule me and they don't want me to have any say in that. I find that to be an unbridgeable gap, certainly for discourse and conversation. So I wrote a book to my side to say, this is what I think is going on. And we, this is how we have to think about the problem from now on. There's no talking to those people anymore. And I know everyone that, you know, the projection that I will get from the right, if any of some of the never Trump, you know, conservatives, put that in quotes, listen to your program, they'll go, oh, you know, the decline in these, these, these pearl-clutching conservatives will lament the decline in civility. It's that Anton says he can't talk to the left anymore. He's the problem. It's that horrible Trump. He's so, you know, he's so vulgar. That's why we can't have salon conversations with our friends in the Upper West Side and in the, you know, and in the Mission District. No, they've ended discourse a long time ago. Their thumbs are in their ears up to the knuckle and they can't hear anything we have to say. And there's no point in wasting your breath trying to talk to the, the woke left. Okay, so it's for the right. It's not for the woke left. But, but what about everybody else? What about the middle? Do you hope that they'll read this book or is it really only I mean, for I would hope right? as many people as possible who are persuadable read the book. I don't have much of an expectation that the middle will read the book just because the middle, the apolitical middle doesn't read political books. I mean, that's kind of what defines them as the apolitical middle. Hmm. They read other stuff. Um, they read, you know, popular history. They read novels. They read whatever they read. But these, a book like this has a, you know, going in, you know, you have a specialized audience. Um, but I also going in, I know that the right is at a moment of confusion and incoherence in a lot of ways. Brought about in part by Trump, who surprised them. Brought about in part by its own um, uh, failures and its own, uh, I was trying to think of a word that means adriftedness. <laughs> it's own, like, I can't, uh, it's own, you know, it's been adrift for a long time and it needs to get itself back together and decide what it wants to conserve and what it wants to do going forward. And I'm trying to make a statement along those lines that I hope persuades people. And the right is also in the midst of a kind of, at least the intellectual right is in a, is in a rhetorical civil war of its own, um, between roughly speaking, those who think uh, Trump is an anomaly and we, you know, leaving aside, I am now excluding from my analysis of the right here, all of those who have uh, formally abandoned the Republican Party, abandoned the conservative movement, have said they're voting sure. for Biden, they're supporting Biden, they're giving money to, I mean, it, 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 the only honest ones among those people are the ones who say, I am no longer a conservative or Republican. The ones who say, I still am, but I'm going to go all in with the leftist project in 2020 are just liars. I do think, however, there are some non-liars, but confused people who still think that they're on the right, that would like to see, you know, can we go back to 1985? Can we go back to, you know, the Bill Buckley, Ronald Reagan right? And the answer to, I think, is no. And then there are some other people on the right, let's say for further to my right, who say, 
it's the founding and the enlightenment and Lincoln and all of these things that the traditional conservatives cherish that got us into this mess. And all of that has to be ripped up root and branch. And we have to go back to, uh, I don't know what, you know, uh, that's part of the problem is what in the American context, I don't think it's feasible for Americans to go back to throne and alter European you know, pre-modern European conservatism, even though there are some Americans who would like to do that. I don't see how that works in the American context. So I'm trying to speak to them too and persuade, um, people who are, you know, let me, let me put it this way. There are uh, those on the right who are, who are pro-Trump and see the crisis of our time the same way that I see it, but who propose solutions that I think are impossible and or undesirable. And then those are, there are those on the right who see the philosophic roots more or less as I see them or more closely to the way I see them, but whose only hang up about the current moment is Trump. I'm, 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 in, a, in essence, I'm trying to talk to those two groups and reconcile them and all of us around a feasible program. Well, let me ask you this. You say America is at the point of no return. Um, what do you understand to be America? Is it these 50 states under this constitution? What is America to you? It's all of that. It's the physical land. It's the people. It's the institutions. It's the history. It's the charters of liberty. It's the principles. It's all of that. Conservatism went adrift in part by... Um, being so impressed, and it is impressive that, you know, uh, 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 that we declared independence formally in a way that had never been done before, that we wrote yeah. down the reasons why, that we wrote down the stated principles of political legitimacy that we were going to found. You know, every regime has a self-understanding of why it is legitimate, why it deserves to rule, and why its rule is just, whether that's the divine right of kings, whether that's, uh, you know, the beginning of Plato's laws, the, the divine lawgiver, you know, like Minos or Lycurgus, you know, there are many, there are options for this. The, the American founders chose a new way, also uh, pithily summarized in the very first lines of the Federalist Papers, that it, you know, it falls to us to decide whether a government will always be established by accident and force, or, you know, rather by reflection and choice. Right. Um, and people are impressed by that. And I, I'm impressed by it. I understand why they're impressed by it. But the, the conservative movement got to a point where it took that so far that it said, America is just an idea. no. George Washington didn't think America was an idea. Thomas Jefferson didn't think America was, was an idea. Abraham Lincoln didn't think America was an idea. They thought that the basis of its political legitimacy came from an idea, but they knew full well that America was a people. The very first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence says, we are becoming a one people. We are separating ourselves from another people. Right. They knew that, that a nation fundamentally is a concrete reality. And so the conservative movement just lost sight of that in its self-congratulation about being so abstract and high-minded. And then, it, and then a, a wing of it came to be absolutely hostile to the notion that there's anything American. You know, you know, they use this derisive phrase that's supposed to make you think of Hitler, right? Oh, if, you're, if, if you don't think America's a purely abstract idea, then you're for blood and soil nationalism. And what they want to pop up in the listener's mind is Hitler. Hitler's bad, therefore blood and soil must be bad, so we have to be as abstract as possible. Anything non-abstract leads to Hitler. I mean, conservative intellectualism really did get that stupid. And it's, that's one of the things that I'm fighting against and trying to argue people out of to the extent that I can. Uh, the renowned historian Bill McClay was on the podcast several weeks ago, and he had the line, he said that America is an idea with a people, but also a people with an idea. Yeah, I think that's that, right. I just, I actually happened to sit next to Bill McClay, well, socially distanced, <laughs> to be clear, sit next to Bill McClay at the National Archives yesterday while the president gave a speech about American history. So, uh, 
Just and this is the, the new, little name drop for you. For your yeah, there, this is the new commission he's creating, yeah. correct? And perhaps we'll discuss that later. But I want to talk about the people. You cite in your book, Arthur Schlesinger's book, The Disuniting yeah. of America, Reflections yeah. on a Multicultural Society. I think the title of that is self-explanatory, but you can go into it if you'd like. But well, it was an extraordinary thing. Is a, so it came out in 91. I was still in college. Uh, and Schlesinger, most famous, I think, for being a, a, an aide, I mean, he's famous for a lot of things, but he's probably most famous for being an aide in the Kennedy White House, part of the Kennedy Brain Trust, you know, a Harvard-trained scholar. And Kennedy got lots of kudos for bringing in all of these very smart, uh, Ivy League-educated people, uh, wrote a memoir of his time in the Kennedy administration, and, and wrote some fairly influential books of American history, on American history about Jackson and FDR and others. Um, so, uh, you know, he was, he was getting old. I don't know how old he was, but he was certainly a liberal, intellectual, and Democratic Party elder statesman yeah. in 1991 when he wrote this book. Very short little book. And it was, my recollection was that it was very widely praised. I mean, he was complaining about what was going on um, in the far left and on college campuses, but the mainstream culture, including the mainstream liberal culture in the Democratic Party said, yeah, this is right. We can't take this too far or it'll cause a problem. But unfortunately, you know, even though he got a fair reception, his warning was not heeded, and the left and the Democratic Party continued to go ever more extreme in exactly the direction he warned about. And uh, it's a tragedy, but it, it shows how far we've gone that, uh, you know, no liberal would ever conceivably write a book like that today. And if they did, well, I, I guess I shouldn't, maybe that's too much. You know, I, I think of the example of Mark Lilla, who wrote, tried to write something like that a year or two ago, and was crucified for it by his own side. So it shows you how far the discourse has moved. Right. So this was 1991, Schlesinger's book was published. And, he and then said it, like updated and republished in 98. But yes, originally 91. Yeah. And he says, even then the trends were already, uh, already fairly developed. So when did this start? Uh, when did we cast aside this melting pot analogy, cease focusing on assimilation, welcoming people into this ex American experiment who want to be a part of it? I think and it's instead, I mean, you know, it's an unoriginal answer, but sometimes the truth is not original. Um, I think it's the 60s. It's the civil rights revolution of the 60s and then the, the new left radicalism of the 60s is when this stuff starts to be cast off. Um, but it takes a while. It takes a while to catch on and infect everything. Um, the way I would put it, and I put it to somebody else, but you know, the old joke, um, how do you go broke? Answer, first gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> so these ideas are, they, they, they're germinated in the university, they're disseminated out through, and everybody's aware that these ideas are there in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but we mostly um, console ourselves or reassure ourselves that they're fringe. They won't infect the popular culture, they won't become dominant. And even as they continue to spread and spread and spread and spread, we think we look around at our own neighbors and our own coworkers at our church and our this, and we think, well, it hasn't rotted this out yet, so I maybe shouldn't worry about it. And then you wake up one day, and it is. And, you know, and to me, the suddenly part begins with the so-called great awakening that uh, a person I don't know, but I think he's a grad student somewhere, and he tweets a lot. And Zach Goldberg has done these numerical analysis word searches in New York Times and other prominent media. It shows that certain phrases are kind of I'm humming along, and then boom, they zoom up yeah. around in the early, you know, in the 20 teens. And 2020 made it completely unmistakable that the, all the stuff that Schlesinger warned about and all the, all the radical stuff from the 60s and 70s was now everywhere. I mean, it, it completely taken over 
every commanding height in American society. Um, on page 118, you write that America is no longer a democracy. It is an oligarchy uh, with real rulers project an illusion of democracy. Uh, when did we cease to become a democracy and become an oligarchy? I don't hear many Americans saying- Again, gradually, gradually. Uh, and then suddenly, right? I mean, when did we, when did the process begin? It probably began in the late 19th century with the capital P progressive era and the creation of the administrative state and unelected fourth branch within the executive branch. Um, there are other milestones along this path, you know, the, the building of the new, the new Deal superstate, the vast expansion of the federal bureaucracy during World War II, and then the expansion of federal powers and national security powers that was um, sold to the American people as a necessary to fight the Cold War. Uh, you know, the other milestones, John F. Kennedy making um, public sector federal government unions uh, legal by executive order, and well, I forgot when he did it, but, you know, when he was president. Um, Carter scrapping um, the civil service exams and, and you know, Nixon's fight against the administrative state, which then I, I urge your, re your listeners to read John Marini on this point, which yeah. fought back and ended up uh, impeaching him. Uh, uh, Marini's take is that Watergate's really not about what you think it's about. It's the administrative state biting back at a president who threatened their power. Um, and that snaps into focus when you think about the Trump impeachment, which was completely engineered by so-called career civil servants and the um, patriotic nonpartisan Alexander Vindman, who recently went to Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic and revealed that he's a completely partisan anti-Trump hack who didn't deserve any of the kudos he was given you know, for his uh, impeachment testimony and, and who, who apparently engineered the entire thing. Uh, so we, you know, gradually then suddenly, I mean, it started a long time ago and it's only been accelerating. Oh, well, you have to blame Congress too for uh, deferring its legislative powers and its oversight powers, either, either surrendering those powers or not using them or both. Uh, but we don't hear many Americans, right? We're Americans. We cherish the idea that we are a democratic republic and we don't, you would think that if we were indeed an oligarchy, there would be more people up in arms. So why aren't there? Do we just not notice? Uh, well, a um, uh, lot of reasons, I suppose, because the theater, you know, the, did the Romans uh, notice uh, when the, the Republic ceased to function or were they happy that the Civil War was over and the bread and circuses still flowed? We even had a second Civil War, thank God, let's, let's knock wood and hope not. But uh, it, it's partly that the theater, you know, and, and the, the Romans were careful to preserve the, Augustus and the other Romans were careful to preserve the outward forms of the regime. So we are careful to preserve the outward forms, the quadrennial presidential election, the you know, State of the Union address, the, uh, all of these things. So maybe people don't realize it. Maybe people think as long as, you know, uh, as long as my personal life is okay or bearable, I'm not going to complain about this. The Declaration of Independence says that uh, men are inclined to bear evil. I'm not going to quote this exactly. I don't have it memorized, but they are inclined to bear evil so long as, or suffer evil so long as evils are sufferable. Yeah. And to overturn arrangements, governing arrangements to which they've become long accustomed. Uh, that's human nature. So the question is, you know, how long can uh, the neoliberal oligarchy keep what they have going? Which is a question that I ask in chapter six. Right. Without answering, I merely explore possibility. Because I don't know the answer, how long they can keep it going. But there, they, it, there could come a point when people do notice and get fed up and, and, and punch back. We've seen stirrings of that this year. Um, both over the lockdowns, over uh, other things that state government, state and local governments have been doing. Um, I'm very keen to watch what's going on, for instance, in uh, 
Melbourne, Australia, and Victoria, Australia, which seems to be the most aggressive, lawless police state of COVID restrictions anywhere going on in the world, where they're now announcing that they're going to pre-arrest people if they think that those people might be agitating about a lot. I mean, it's really insane police state stuff. And I'm waiting for the Australians to stand up and just say, no, this is tyranny. You can't, it's not clear that that will happen. I mean, you know, uh, uh, the spirit of a people can be sufficiently sapped over time that they accept things that in an earlier age they would not have accepted. And I don't know at what state the spirit of the American people is at the moment. You, I, you could argue this either way that, you know, they're one snapped twig away from saying I've had enough or, you know, the, the, uh, that revolutionary spirit out of which the country was born, that Republican rebellious spirit is, is so, um, denuded at this point that they won't do anything. I don't know what the answer to that is. And I think we're only going to have to, we're going to find out via events. There's no way to answer it in speech. If America is at, is at risk of going under, if the stakes are that America will, will come undone, this is not just a threat to America, right? This is a threat to free government, as, yeah. as the founding fathers would have said to us, as, as Lincoln said. So say a word about that. What are, what are the, the long-term consequences of, of America, of this American experiment failing around well, the world? The founders would have been the first to say, free, and they do say in the, Federalist, in the early pages of the Federalist Papers, free government is a historical anomaly. That's right. So if free government were to go under, first of all, I, I, I'm a believer, I'll, I, you know, I will, I will confess that, you know, in the many hypotheticals I lay out in the book in which I say, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that, you know, there are certain things I actually do believe. I just can't say where we are within the, the framework, but uh, I'm a believer in the classical conception of the cycle of regimes. So it would be naive and foolish to think that American freedom will last forever. Um, whatever, you know, it, that's just, you know, even Lincoln didn't believe that the American Republic as it is could last forever. Um, he thought it might last for a very long time. And he also thought it might, that if it were to be undone, it, it would be undone from within, which seems to be yeah. prophetic and true. So, um, you know, the other possibility, which I raise in the, in the, so I think this gets to your question. It's the very last section of chapter seven, which is probably the most, um, <laughs> can I say interesting about my own book? Uh, it's probably <laughs> the, most, the most um, uh, out there, uh, unusual <laughs> for a conservative book, a conservative, you know, intellectual political book. Yeah. In that I speculate about things that conservatives don't like to think about: secession, yeah. civil wars, uh, and, and, you know, that, that, and that kind of Caesarism, that kind of stuff. At the end, I, I talk about the cycle of regimes, and I say that the worst. And I don't say that we're at this. I just say it's possible. We need to reckon with the fact that there's a cycle of regimes in which democracy or republicanism gives way to some form of tyranny, something, you know. But there's also a cycle of civilizations or sects, S-E-C-T-S, which if, if, this, if what, what you said, what we are now going through is not confined to America, but is, con but, but, but is intimately linked to the fate of liberty in Europe and in other parts of the world, then the whole sort of modern sect may be about to go under. Or worse, the whole Western sect, which predates modernity, may be nearing its end. Uh, and then the only good news I can offer you, if that is true, and I'm not saying it is true, and you know, people wanna, are gonna wanna call me crazy for even thinking this thought, to which I just respond, well, okay, if I'm crazy, then so is Plato, Aristotle, Polybius, Cicero, Machiavelli, Montesquieu, because they all think this is true. And, and I learned it from them. Right. Um, you're not getting this from me. You're getting it through me from them. So fine. Call them crazy. 
Um, if that's true, then the good news I can give you is if they're all, <laughs> then the cycle always restarts. Yeah. Right now, <laughs> who knows where any of us in, maybe individually when it restarts or what you have to go through before it restarts. But there, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. Uh, the tunnel may be long and the light may appear to be the size of a pinhead at the moment, but it's there. <laughs> well, I'm not quite sure I'll call that an optimistic note, but we'll take it for now. Uh, you acknowledge that conservatives don't like to speculate about the things that you contemplate in this book. You do not advocate secession, revolution, war, but you, you do acknowledge that they could be, in your opinion, a possibility. Yeah. I think some conservatives would respond to you and say, um, you know, you're not a fringe character. You're a lecturer at Hillsdale. You've worked in some oh, of the no, highest. I think many of them would respond to me precisely by saying he's a fringe character. Well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's the case. I don't think you are. I, I, you know, I take your work seriously. I think our listeners and readers should as well. Um, and yet, you may still get the response. You know, by speculating about these things, you are egging them on. Yeah, I How know. Would you I, respond to that. I actually expected to get that response. Um, and I haven't. I mean, the, the, the conservatives have ignored me so far. Now, it's only been, what, three weeks? So, you know, yeah. a little more than, well, not, not even quite three weeks. It's the 18th. The book came out on the 1st. So two and a half weeks in. And I've so far been ignored. Um, maybe that may, will continue. The silence will continue. Maybe they'll step up and argue it. Um, no, I'm not. Even, my, my explicit purpose in writing the book was to lend whatever voice I have, whatever influence I have, to the forces of moderation to say, let's back off. It's the hard pedal to the floor on more neoliberalism, sort of more of everything we have now that will uh, provoke those calamities that I outlined in chapter seven. And if we want to avoid them, we can do it still, I think. But, but the people running, driving the car have got to ease off on the gas. And I don't get the sense that any of them are doing that. So what, what, I, what I also expect will happen from projection is, they will provoke one of these reactions, you know, and, you know, I, I lay out some possibilities in the book, like, you know, a really super woke president, like president, you know, uh, I think I used something, what did I say? Um, uh, Kamala Ocasio Warren or something like that. Imagine, them, I, I, I imagine Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris and AOC and the squad all got into a teleporter and then they were melded into one person. And that person became president, the living embodiment of, of hectoring, belligerent, left-wing wokeness. And somebody in Idaho or Utah defied a federal order, and they decided, I'm bringing the hammer down to show you Red Roots who's in charge. And they really did provoke a reaction. I think that's a possibility, right? I would have, I would have expect the entire editorial boards of seven or eight conservative magazines to go, oh my God, this is Anton's fault. As projection, they won't. They won't. They won't admit that the left actually provoked it. They'll be like, "He laid the groundwork." But you know, these bad conservatives, these Trump people, laid the groundwork for this. And they inspired it. Yeah. Well, you you acknowledge there or mentioned there the explicit purpose of your book, which of course uh, leads us to believe that there is an implicit purpose of the book. But you know, we'll leave listeners to wrestle with that on their own. When when did you finish writing the book? Uh, I finished a first draft in. I want May, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember exactly what date, but it was before COVID and Floyd. Okay. And so and then and then so I wrote it from about kind of mid to late December to let's say early May. I blew my deadline. So, you know, I my apologies to the publisher. Um, and then I I whenever I write anything, I always go back to the top, reread, but this is by far the longest thing I've ever done. So I knew it was gonna take months to reread. Re I mean, 
every chapter I wrote, I would finish a chapter, I would go back to the top, rewrite the chapter. Sometimes that would take oh. days or even a week. Yeah. And then I had to go back and reread the whole thing and rewrite it before I submitted the manuscript. While I was in the midst of doing that, um, well, well, so COVID, you know, starts becoming a thing around March. And, and I mean, even before that, but I think the most countries went into lock, most, most states, counties went into lockdown around mid-March, like Fairfax County Public Schools, where I am, shut down on a Friday in like March 11th, March 13th, yeah. something like that. And so I started working in a few things about that. And then the Floyd riots began, the woke riots, the 1619 riots began um, May 25th. Uh, and I, as I went back through the rewrite, I included a lot of information on that. Um, and then when I got the galleys, whenever that was, I did another full uh, read through with edits. I mean, if I had had more time on this, I would have, you know, if anybody finds a mistake, I hope there aren't any, but, uh, or just thinks, well, this could be polished up better. You know, this guy's a hack. Well, if I'd had more time, it probably would read a little bit cleaner, but at a certain point, events were happening so fast and the publisher was like, look, and, and I agreed with him. I mean, he just said, we just have to drop the, the gate. This has yeah. to come out. Like if you try to keep up with everything, you'll, I said, okay, fine, just do it. Yeah. And even still, you compare the concurrent riots and COVID lockdowns to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union and 9-11. Um, so how have I mean, those, past- I, not so much a comparison, but I say that those are the only three big major life events right now. Those are the only three sort of world historical things that have happened during my lifetime. So the fall of the Soviet, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then the you know the transition from the Soviet Union to the Russian Federation, uh, 9/11, and this. Sure. So uh, how have the past several months, uh, the lockdowns, the riots, all of it, changed your thinking, uh, if at all? Um, not not at all. They've only changed my thinking in that I thought that you know. A worst case when might be a decade away. It might be, you know, a little long. Now I think like the worst case is a lot closer than, potentially a lot closer than even I had feared. Mm-hmm. On page 69, you write- Otherwise I take it as, I take it as basically as confirmation of most of what I'm talking about. <laughs> I mean, just to say, to cite two things. First of all, the, the, the ferocity uh, of the left, how completely anti-American it has become and just violently- um, how much it violently hates this country and big portions of its people and its history and how it's willing to countenance all kinds of violence in the streets, how it's willing to use state pa- pa- power. Uh, that's kind of the second point is the willingness of the left to use state power um, unlawfully, coercively, in a kind of permanent state of exception, you know, where, oh, well, this is a crisis. Therefore, you know, liberty doesn't matter. The Constitution doesn't matter. The statute doesn't matter. I'm just going to rule by lawless decree and use prosecutorial discretion to uh, let rioters, looters, and stuff out of jail and, and maximally target people who exercise their natural uh, right to self-defense. All of that I kind of knew was in the bloodstream, but see it in such concentrated form, uh, ha- you know, it happens so often, so blatantly, the hypocrisies are so obvious. You can have a massive BLM protest in New York, no, so- no masks, everybody shoulder to shoulder, but if a pastor tries to open a church with people sitting six feet apart, he goes to jail. Yeah. I mean, the, the blatant hypocrisy that's been exercised. Um, guys with guns chase somebody through the streets, uh, pretending to kill him. He shoots them in self-defense. He's on, he gets arrested and charged with, I don't know, three counts of first degree. First degree murder, as if he went there intending to kill somebody. This not is he, Kyle yeah, Rittenhouse. I mean, it's yeah. grotesque what the state authorities are doing, and it shows you what they have in store for us as a country when they have complete power. On page 69, you write, quote, 
It is a perhaps sad, but nonetheless intractable truth that not all peoples in all times and places are ready or able to assume the responsibilities of liberty or to secure their equal natural rights through Republican government. Uh, it follows then that if we're not always ready to assume these responsibilities, we're not always capable of maintaining them. Yep. So I guess my question is, is twofold. Uh, first, how do you know if someone is ready or able to assume the responsibilities of liberty or secure their natural rights through Republican government? And two, are we right now? Um, uh, we don't look like it, right? I mean, there are reasons to doubt our ability right now. Um, I mean, how do you know? You, you know in the telling. You, you know, if, if they can do it, they do it. And if they can't, they don't. I mean, this is when I talk, you skip ahead in the book when I talk about Caesarism in chapter seven. Um, you know, the, the classics implicitly make a distinction between or, or, or uh, tyranny and Caesarism, or rather they say that C Caesarism is a subset of tyranny, right? Yeah. Fundamentally, I asked this to my students the other night, you know, what is a tyrant? And they all want to say a, a, a wicked ruler who, who governs harshly. That's the subsidiary meaning of tyrant for the Greeks. The, 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 the base meaning of tyrant is a usurper, right? Someone who usurps power illegitimately. Mm. Um, and tyrant, tyranny is associated with, with harsh um, rule because they tend to govern that way, but they don't necessarily always. So what is Caesarism? Well, Caesarism is a tyranny that is, that is partly legitimized by necessity. In other words, when the Republic no longer functions and somebody assumes the powers of the state uh, in a way for the good of the state, that is Caesarism. Um, uh, if you read, I would, you know, getting a little geeky here, but like read Plutarch's Life of Cicero. We love Cicero because we love his letters and his writings and his speeches and his philosophic dialogues and all of that. Plutarch's very hard on Cicero, though, because Plutarch says Cicero's living in the past. He's trying to restore or maintain a republic that can't be maintained anymore because the corruption of the people mm. is such that, um, you know, it's not 202 BC anymore. Yeah. We're at a point where they can't do it. Um, I hope we're not at that point. Uh, and, you know, and I get, I get called such unbelievable names over the Flight 93 election uh, where, you know, where all I was recommending people to do was vote. People says, oh, he's, he's stirring up authoritarian passions in the people. I'm like, really? For voting? I mean, voting is the essence of maintaining Republican liberty in our system. And so that's the antithesis, the opposite of wishing for one man rule or some kind of tyranny. Uh, so I, 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 I'm fearful. I'll be honest. I'm fearful that we are past a point or we're sliding toward a point when liberty can no longer function adequately. But I don't think we've crossed the fall. We've gone over the falls yet. And I think we have a chance. But, you know, to have that chance, a number of things have to happen, which I outlined in Chapter 8, all the things I think need to happen for this to work. Right. So let's talk about uh, how we can start moving forward. My general approach in reading is to pay attention when a writer says something is most important. And you write that the most important thing we need to do is unquestionably the hardest, create and elevate a new elite. At the surface, this seems somewhat paradoxical because you write that the Republican Party or its successor must be the party of the common man and woman, the ordinary Joe and Jane, the average American. Mm -hmm. And yet again, the most important thing for us to do is create and elevate a new elite. Explain yeah. that. Well, there's a chapter in Machiavelli's discourses, which is entitled, A Multitude Without a Head is Useless, right? The people never leads itself. No. They are led by somebody, uh, and they are led by an elite. Now, whether that is an whether that is an elite within the people, a popular elite that arises, you know, the cream of the people rises to the top, or whether it's from a kind of detached 
hereditary or semi-hereditary caste, but that leads for the common good. They are always led. We don't, what we have now is an elite that, that, that leads for its private good. Hmm. It governs for the private good of a handful of industries, a handful of regions and cities, and sticks it to the rest of the country and doesn't care, or, or, or worse, uh, morally lectures the rest of the country that it is despoiling, that, the des- you know, that it's all their fault. Uh, we need a patriotic elite that governs for the common good and that specifically seeks for the next, let's say, generation or so. Its priority should be to redress these massive economic and social imbalances that have built up in the system. In, in a way, they need to do the same thing that, um, you know, I, I attack the progressives um, for certain reasons, but I praise them in one paragraph for other reasons. I will now praise them partially too. Um, we allowed massive economic inequality to build up in the system in the post-Civil War era. And a lot of that was covered up or masked or, you know, alleviated by the fact that there really was a rising tide that was lifting all boats. So there was a concentration of oligarchic power, but the growth in the system was so great that it was spreading to almost everyone. And still it required a corrective in trust busting and regulation and other things in the progressive era in the early part of the 20th century to get that under control and to get America to a place where in the middle of the 20th century, we had one of the most balanced economies we've ever had, where the Gini coefficient, you know, the measures of inequality were at their lowest. Um, since then, we've, let, we've gone back to the robber baron era in a way, but worse, with a higher level of uh, inequality, but the, a rising tide that's not lifting all boats, yeah. right? The little boats are sinking and the mega yachts are growing ever larger and longer. So the first priority for this new elite, assuming that they can be found and empowered, will be to redress that, that fundamental imbalance. I'm not saying to make everybody equal. I mean, this is not an argument for leveling. This is not an argument for redistribution, although it is an argument for rethinking tax policy. It is an argument for rethinking trade policy and stuff like this. Like, I really don't care if Jeff Bezos loses $50 billion if I can give you know, wage increases of 10% to uh, the working class by some policy. I mean, I, I know there's no magic wand that can do that, but you know, I can just hear some AEI scholar going like, oh, you've violated the, the, you know, the fundamental tenets of conservatism uh, by that, and you know, you're not conservative. All right, if that makes me not conservative, I'll own it. And you can have the, the conservative label, and you can call me whatever name you want, but I'm still sticking to my new, my new outlet. In the final sentence of the book, you ask or wonder, quote, yeah. are there any among us with the justice, moderation, talent, courage, and wisdom to reorder, perhaps we should say refound America? Uh, these are obvious virtues, right? Justice, moderation, courage. So what is the importance of virtue in a statesman? Uh, do you differentiate between public and private virtue? Is such a distinction useful or even possible? Yeah, I mean, I'm with, I've, I, I'm a complete uh, Aristotelian on the question of virtue. There's not a thing in, in the Nicomachean ethics that I, I can dispute or would disagree with. So yes, there's a distinction between public and private virtue. There are virtues that um, everyone must share for society to work. And then there are virtues that are rare or more uncommon that are necessary to the statesman that aren't necessarily necessary to the citizen. Um, you know, wisdom and courage being uh, above them. I mean, a, a citizen may be called upon to exercise courage in battle or something, but in an, or, as an ordinary life, you will not. Uh, and we, we don't, if we had wise statesmen, America wouldn't be at the impasse that it is now. Um, Trump's got courage in spades. I mean, you know, I, 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 I think about what it's like 
to be Donald Trump. On the one hand, it's fun, you know, because you get to be the president and you're already a rich celebrity and had a great life. On the other hand, you know, you, you are, you are uh, uh, vituperatively hated by half the country and attacked by all of its premier institutions. And boy, does it take courage to deal and fortitude to deal with that on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so, the, I mean, the ending of the book is a call for reorganization. Yeah. I, I don't think this is going to solve all our problems, but I think it could solve a lot of our problems to simply let um, the differing regions of the country uh, self-govern in a more complete way. And as opposed to this pr push toward centralized uniformity that um, has been ongoing now for 50 years, or you could even say 125 years, but it seems to have been accelerating lately. Uh, I've, I've, I mean, I, I don't know, the America of the 70s and 80s when I was growing up just didn't feel like this. It mm -hmm. didn't. Uh, I could go, I, I never, I felt like I was in the United States when I was in San Francisco. I don't anymore. <laughs> I feel like an enemy alien. <laughs> they probably see you that way too. <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, nobody knows who I am. So I, <laughs> I, 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 haven't, I haven't been back. In a, I used to go all the time, but I haven't been back in a while. I think if I were to go back, which I have no intention of doing, um, I wouldn't be recognized anyway. But um, it's just it's just like, I don't know. It, 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 uh, like I said, I'm a fairly blue person culturally uh, and, and by background and upbringing. And yet I don't feel like I have really anything in common with that part of the world anymore. Um, Whereas I don't really have anything in common with like, you know, duck hunters in Texas either. But I also feel like I know, I, I, I feel like I, I respect them culturally. I respect their views. I respect their faith. I respect their patriotism. And I just feel like I have more of an affinity with them, even if, you know, I, I, you know I'm, not, I'm not, I don't have that same kind of uh, cultural upbringing. Yeah, I um, well, I, I want to return to that in a second, but but first, I, I do. You mentioned that Trump has has courage. Uh, what of these other virtues? Is there a statesman on the scene or someone who could be the statesman that you can think of who exemplifies these virtues of justice, moderation, courage, wisdom? No, I mean, I, I look. I see people who I, I like I'll, 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 some of what they're saying. I like a lot of their policy prescriptives. Um, I don't see at the moment, I don't see a statesman like that. I don't see a, a successor to Trump, an obvious successor to Trump either, which will have to emerge, who, who will have to emerge. There are people you can point to that have parts of it. Um, but, you know, I'm admitting it, though, admittedly, I'm asking for kind of, you know, another Washington or another Lincoln. Yeah, They're, they are maybe once in a once in a century types. So one should not get churlish <laughs> if one does not find a, a statesman of that caliber out the window, you know, one morning. And and yet the times call forth the man, right? And, and if the stakes are as high as you say they are, perhaps our Washington or our Lincoln. Yeah, I have a friend who 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 says that a lot, and he's optimistic. Um, you know, we don't. He, he, you know, if this person could come along in any moment, uh, the times call. He says almost exactly that way. The times call forth. Okay. You know, I mean, the Times called for Trump. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to compare Trump to Lincoln or Washington, but he was the right man for the moment, and he had the right program. He diagnosed the problem correctly. And all the people who want to call him dumb and a buffoon, and I don't want to say, well, Trump was right about immigration, trade, and war, and and all of his 16 opponents were wrong. So who's the buffoon? Why is he a buffoon when he, on the most important things, leave aside his success at connecting with an electorate and winning the election. Leave it. Remember, by the way. Just, just so I just want to make this point. Uh, 
a, a, a common criticism of Barack Obama around 2008 was, what's this guy ever done? He spent, you know, four years in the Senate voting present without a single piece of legislation to his credit. And some, I forgot how long in the Illinois state legislature, we also voted present and didn't do anything. He's basically no accomplishments to his name. And his, Obama's partisans said, well, winning the nomination, winning the election is an accomplishment. Okay, that's true. But it's, it's also kind of a snarky answer because you're giving that answer because you know there's nothing else that you can point to, right? But no one was willing to make the same argument about Trump. Well, winning the winning the you know isn't a winning the primaries and then winning the election is an accomplishment. Well, that you know that's only true of Obama. It's not true of Trump. I would say no. The bigger accomplishment was figuring out what was actually wrong with the country, and proposing the right program is a major accomplishment. Yeah. And it proves that he's not a buffoon, right. and it proves that he's not dumb. And it proves that uh, you know he actually has political talent and political skill. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to return quickly as we're drawing to, an, to a close here. Uh, when you said that you don't feel that you have anything in common anymore with, with your compatriots in, in San Francisco. I shouldn't say quite nothing. Like, I still think the state is physically beautiful. Um, if I could walk the streets of San Francisco without getting accosted by drug addicts, lunatics, and so on, and stepping on hypodermic needles, I do still think, I'm, uh, I do still think the restaurants, many of them are magnificent. Um, um, you know, uh, so I have something in common with them, but I, I, you know, I just don't, I don't want to live in a woke tyranny that, that won't clean the streets and won't enforce the law against, or against criminals, but will, you know, I, I mean, the, the, the district attorney of San Francisco County, you know, my mother was an elected district attorney of a county in California and her father was the sheriff. So I come from a, a county in California, elected sheriff, I come from a long line of law enforcement in California. The elected district attorney of San Francisco is the son of two new left terrorists who went to jail for murder. So he had to be raised by two other new left terrorists, uh, Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, who among other things, bombed the New York City Police Department headquarters in the early 1970s. This is, this is a far left radical America hating, uh, I mean, just a really vicious person. And, and, and a place that would elect a person like that to a law enforcement office where he says he's, gonna, he's basically not gonna prosecute a whole list of crimes and just vindictively go after ordinary bourgeois taxpaying, you know, uh, solid citizens trying to go about their ordinary lives. That just tells me I, I have nothing in common with an electorate who would vote for somebody like that and award them such power. And it, it's the kind of thing, I don't think it's sustainable. I think San Francisco, if it continues on this path, will destroy itself. I don't know why it wants to destroy itself, but I know that I don't want any part of it. As somebody who grew up in, in, in part in it and, and around it and visiting it constantly throughout my life. I, I, it's sad for me to see, but I know that I can't talk them out of it, but I, I, I just don't want any part of it. Do you see any, any causes for optimism? Yeah, Trump could win the election. Um, and then the effort on the Democratic side to steal it from him could fail or be thwarted. Trump could then have a successful second term uh, at which an, a, a Trumpist successor emerges. The left could become chastened by their myriad failures to defeat him in 2016 and 2020. Maybe there's some cool, I don't know who or where this is, but maybe there's somebody on the left right now thinking, golly, burning down American cities for four months straight in 2020 has been actually bad, not just bad for those cities and their residents, but bad for us politically. Maybe we need to come to a new path and the, the things that I sketch in chapter eight could come to pass. That could happen. Not ruling it out. 
Well, uh, Nancy Pelosi seems to have realized, as Don Lemon has, that uh, that the rioting is not good for the country. And I think a couple of days ago, she she finally condemned it. So, um, all right. Well, I want to end on a lighter note. I, I think this will be a lighter note. I don't know where this question will end up. Uh, you're also the author, in addition to uh, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return, you're the author of The Suit, A Machiavellian Approach to Men's yeah. Style, written under the name Nicholas Anton Giovanni. Yeah. Um, you are, I think, one of the best dressers in Washington, one of the only people who will wear a pocket square more. <laughs> I uh, think pocket squares have actually kind of come back. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, there was a time when nobody, you'd never see anybody with one. I, I see them a lot now or more than I used to. Maybe not but uh, well, that's that's a testament uh, to the suit. Uh, I think that's the cause of the book. But what I want to ask you is, uh, what does Trump's what does Trump's style say about him? I mean, Trump's st- style is sort of um, you know, it's not mine, right? I'm I'm more uh, low key, a little more draped, a little more. Uh, his is more a New York businessman, but kind of New York big man. Like the, the, the red power tie was a thing a long time ago and he still does it. I mean, he had it on yesterday as he gave that speech. Um, I like a kind of droopy slouchy suit. He likes the Brioni structure, very, very different aesthetic than mine, but it it suits his personality and it suits his, uh, his lifestyle and his background, you know, and, and that's the one thing that, um, you know, there's no one way to dress. It's gotta, it's gotta fit the scenario, you know? And, uh, I remember what, so for instance, I remember once in the, in the two thousands, I, um, I had a meeting with somebody at a huge Silicon Valley company from which, from whom I was trying to get a contract or something. And I go in there and I'm in my suit cause I'm, I was in, you know, in from New York and thinking this is the way you do business meetings. I, I didn't realize how out of touch I was. I just, uh, and, and nobody's got a suit on. And, yeah. and, and I'm looking, I'm thinking this might've been a mistake. And I get led into a conference room and I'm seated there and this guy comes in. He's a very, very senior guy at the company. He comes in in his polo shirt. And he's very taken aback by the suit. And he says, uh, um, wow. Uh, you know, he didn't have to dress up. I was like, Oh no, it's business meeting. He goes, you look like you kind of like that. Don't you? And I said, <laughs> I, yeah, I guess. He says, yeah. Well, nobody around here is like this anymore. In the end, I did not get the contract. Maybe it was the suit. <laughs> the point is, you got to be dressed uh, properly for the uh, um, venue and the milieu that you're in, right? Well, that's so, uh, sound advice to end yeah. on. Our guest today has been Michael Anton, and the book is The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Michael Anton on his new book, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. It's an insightful and entertaining book, even if the subject itself, America at the Point of No Return, is somewhat disconcerting. I put a link to the book in the show notes, along with a link to the Flight 93 election essay from 2016. I think they're both worth your time. That'll do it for now. Thanks so much for joining us today, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.